Hello out there, everybody. I hope you're all safe and sound. Dave Smith here, just dropping in for a quick minute to let you know about this course we have coming out with Tenzin Chogi. You'll hear more about it in this upcoming interview. There'll be more stuff coming out from our Secular Dharma Foundation podcast, courses, retreats, and a whole bunch of cool shit. So we talk about the course she's doing through the Secular Dharma Foundation in this interview. You can click to check out the course in the show notes here. And as always, thanks, everybody. Hope to see you soon. Peace. All right. Good morning. This is Dave Smith here. I'm here with my good friend Tenzin Chogi. How you doing out there? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for inviting me to your show today. No, I'm wicked happy to have you. And um, where are you right now, actually? Are you out in Santa Cruz? So I'm in Santa Cruz, California, Surf City. Nice. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, I just want to introduce you a little bit because I, 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 I'm very fond of you and I'm really happy that we're getting to talk and happy Aww. to talk about this course that we've been working on. But just uh, the, the funny thing was I, I did the CEB training, Cultivating Emotional Balance, a few years back. And I remember going into, um, it wasn't Atlanta Medicine, but it was at the other place, Vajrapani. Vajrapani Institute in Boulder Creek near Santa Cruz. Yeah, in and I mountain. remember going there. And of course, I'm, I'm a Buddhist. I have no problem with Buddhism or any of those things. But I remember going into the hall and being like, this is a very non-secular room for a secular training. And, <laughs> and then the first day they, they had you, I saw you there. I met you for the first time. And I was like, uh, and I was like, oh, they're bringing in the token Tibetan Buddhist nun. <laughs> And, and, and so I always have, you know, so I had some, I wouldn't say I had some contempt, but I had some like apprehension. And then I, I saw you speak and the, the, after the listening to you talk for the first, first five minutes, I completely fell in love with you. And I was like, oh. I was like, you squashed all my stereotypes. And ever since then, I'm always, you're always one of my favorite people to talk to. So I'm really happy to Aww. have you here. Thanks so much, Dave. That's so sweet. And that's exactly the kind of feedback I prefer to get, you know. <laughs> One, I think one of the most challenging things for me as a monastic is the level of projection, oh boy. right? You're a recipient of all of this projection, some of it positive, some of it not so positive, but very little has to do with who you really are. So I really like exploding people's projections. So it's nice to hear that I was able to do that. Yeah, you shattered it. It was like, it was like, like you know. And, yeah. Uh, so I'm just curious, you know, uh, of course, I want to introduce you to people because I'm very fond of your teaching and I'm, and I'm glad that you have a lot of stuff out in the world. But how, how long have you been a monastic and how did you just go, go hit rewind? What was going on in your life? When did you make this transition into becoming a Tibetan Buddhist nun and what was that like? Yeah, so it all started, you know, I'm not going to start with the Big Bang, but actually as a hippie teenager, I started meditating in the early 70s with TM, Transcendental Meditation, which is super popular. So, you know, it kind of all started back then, my spiritual path, and just really like growing up in a super secular household in, you know, kind of capitalist suburban America. And then this whole new world opening up to me with reading books like Be Here Now by Ram Das and Autobiography of a Yogi and starting to grow up then. Where, where... You know, my, my dad was in the Navy and we moved a lot ah. and lived in other countries. So it was a real, you know, in a, in a lot of ways, very unstable. So I think that's always been part of my propensity for looking for, you know, we talk about refuge in Buddhism, like in an inner refuge, because I didn't have a whole lot externally. So it kind of started then. And then I started reading books about Buddhism and just felt like theoretically there was this resonance, especially with the idea of the bodhisattva path, you know, the being that devotes every lifetime to benefiting others. And even as a teenager, I found that incredibly inspiring. But then it took many years before I actually started practicing and meeting Buddhist teachers. And then I had this real impulse that, you know, at a certain point, looking for a teacher, somebody I could really study with. And somehow His Holiness, the Dalai Lama really came up in my mind. And even though I hadn't met him and never heard him talk, I don't think at that point I'd ever even read a book, but it was just this strong instinct. What year and so was I, that? that was, and that was 1990. And oh, so wow. I quit the job. I, so I started meditating in the early seventies, you know, kind of consider myself a Buddhist from about 1979 or so, or 1980 but then met the Dalai Lama in, in early 1991. And that was when the biggest shift 
happened and really kind of committing myself to the path and starting to work in Buddhist centers. And, you know, really a big shift of commitment was around 1991. And then I got ordained by His Holiness the Dalai Lama as a Buddhist monastic in 2004. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that was my big dream come true. And he teased me for being really tall. As you know, I'm very tall. Where do you come from? Where do they grow people who look like you? <laughs> yeah, so I, I've seen pictures of you actually, I think, at Vajrapani with a full head of hair. And now, did you, oh, work, right. did, did you work for Buddhist organizations in the 80s or the 90s? Did you have like an administrative kind of role? Yeah, what was that like? Yeah, that's what I did. So, so when I, when I traveled to India and then ended up spending about a year and a half in India and Nepal, studying in different monasteries and Buddhist centers. And then one of my teachers, Lama Zopa Rinpoche, asked me if I could come back to California and, work, and be the director of one of his uh, centers, which was Vajrapani Institute, where I met you in Boulder Creek outside of Santa Cruz. So since then, for about 10 years, I worked in administration in Buddhist centers and Buddhist organizations, and then did two long retreats starting in the year 2000. We have a a kind of in Tibetan Buddhism, we have a a culture of doing these three-year retreats. So I did two three-year retreats. So I was basically in solitary retreat between 2000 and 2006 went into retreat as a lay person, as a non-monastic, as just an ordinary woman with long hair. And then it was actually the last year of my first three-year retreat, I decided to get ordained and then went to India to get ordination with His Holiness the Dalai Lama and then went back into retreat for three more years and then came out in 2006. And that's when I really started teaching. So kind of moved from... Now and that's your classic. It's three, isn't it three years, three months, three, three weeks, months three and days. three days? Yeah, yeah, yeah like that. Yeah. Where, where did you do those retreats, and what was that like? That's a long time to be down under the. Uh... Oh my gosh! Yes, the first one I did in a yurt in the desert in Arizona really? at a hermitage there. So a yurt, like a canvas yurt, and I that bet it was hot was... in the summer. It was so hot in the summer. Oh, my gosh. And we lived through the hottest, driest summer in 100 years in southeastern Arizona, which is saying a lot to be the hottest, driest in 100 years. That was that was amazing. It was trial by fire. You know, it was terrifying. Like all my friends are like, oh, my gosh, it's so exciting. You get to do long retreat. You're just going to be blissed out for three years. And I was like, did you ever try and meditate? Like being in solitary confinement with this mind is not a blissful experience. <laughs> now, what terrible. kind of practice is doing? We, now, are you doing, like, if I'm so used to Vipassana retreats where it's sort of sit, walk, sit, walk in a pretty robust yeah. schedule. I mean, how many hours a day are you sitting and what kind of practices are you doing? Or is it just kind of free reign? How does that work? Yeah, so for the first retreat, it was, it was a, a very traditional Tibetan Buddhist practice four sessions a day. So that's kind of the setup of the retreat. So you do one session kind of early in the morning. Usually I'd wake up at like 3.30, do one session of two to three hours before breakfast, eat a little something, then do a morning session, then have a break, eat the main meal at noon, and then go for a walk or have some exercise or take a break, another afternoon session, and then another evening session. So that's the tradition is four sessions a day. And no, nothing after lunch, just two meals a day. Yeah, just two meals a day. And then you're mostly, I mean, it's kind of 10 to 12 hours a day sitting. And then the rest of the time is just eating and, you know, getting some exercise. You can, the, the structure is that you're meant to only read what relates to your practices, right? And then you're you're in a hermitage, so no internet, no TV, no distraction of any kind. Wow. So that that you know, so it creates this kind of pressure cooker, oh, actually, wow. not for the faint-hearted. And and then and then I did another one in another hermitage in the central coast of California. After that, in both places, we were told like there some some hermitages have a retreat master there in residence. Both of these places, we were told, you need to be really clear on the instructions because 
basically you're kind of on your own for your practice. There wasn't a wow. teacher on site to consult with. A couple of times I would have questions and then I'd write my teacher, but it was, you know, we didn't have access to so internet you get a response two weeks later. Yeah. Or, or sometimes months later, you know, I mean, generally my teachers would prioritize responding quickly to people in retreat because they realized you were there you were and you were kind of stuck if you had a question but i really prepared well and had a lot of training going in and that was kind of one of the prerequisites like you needed to be really ready not, not your first retreat experience probably. not my first rodeo <laughs> yeah <laughs> wow. yeah so that was amazing and then after that i started teaching i i really came out of that experience going okay, very few people are going to do what I just did. And I did feel that I'd gotten some insights, you know, into really kind of the workings of the mind. And just, yeah, just a lot of really practical insights. And then I thought, oh, I would love to just share this with people, you know, coming out of this to kind of save people the time of doing six years of solitary retreat. Like if there's anything I can share about what happened to me or what insights I got. So that was 2006. I came out and then I've been teaching as my main thing since then. Yeah. Yeah. Some of the insights you had, like were were there any, I I know that these long retreats are kind of grueling, but were there days or moments or experiences where you're like, where you felt something internally, you had big shifts. Oh, definitely. And it was usually the the hardest times. Like I really realized, and it was really interesting because about halfway through that retreat, I was reading uh, a book and a friend of mine who's a Buddhist nun does a lot of interfaith dialogue and she loves meeting these Christian monastics, you know, these nuns who've been ordained for like 60 years or something, you know, these older, older Christian nuns. And she was talking to one of them, a Catholic nun, And she said, what do you do when you experience like the dark night of the soul? And it was such an interesting response, this Catholic nun who was in her 80s and had been a nun for like more than 60 years. And she said, I realize it's actually when my understanding of things is moving to a more subtle level and the old understanding isn't working anymore. So it's actually a sign of this incredible progress that your understanding is moving to a more nuanced, subtler level, but the old understanding isn't working. So it feels like a crisis of faith, you know, or the dark night of the soul. And I know it was so helpful to have that framing because I would notice that. And then it would get to the point where in retreat, when I would have one of those experiences of just the bottom dropping out and everything just feeling so bleak, I'd go, oh, great. Like, it's actually a sign that I'm kind of moving to a new whole. Yeah, and, and sure enough, you know, then it would settle out at the new yeah. level of understanding. I had a, a good friend and after after retreat, she was asking me kind of like, what happened in there? And I I, so I met her at a Buddhist center. We were at a teaching together and we were together. I remember this so clearly. We were together in the dining room one morning and then everyone else had left and she kind of looks around and she goes, okay, it's just me. You can spill the beans now. Like, what tell happened? me. Because she wanted me to say something (laughs) like, oh, I saw a vision of the Buddha coming down on a cloud from the sky or something like she was, she was like, I know you're not supposed to say, you know, what really happened. And I said, you know, I said, actually, the most profound thing that happened to me in the first three year retreat is I really learned to make friends with myself. Like I really learned to accept myself. And she looked at me in shock and then she just kind of burst into tears. And that was so meaningful for her. And I was like, you know, it's not about the Buddha coming down from the sky, at least not for me, but it's about, can I really accept where I am and have a vision of flourishing, but really deep kind of self-compassion, self-kindness, self-acceptance, which you know, I didn't realize what a struggle it was until I was in solitary confinement. Yeah. No, my I mom. Hear you. It's funny you bring up that that teaching because in in the in the tradition that I'm familiar with, like a Mahasi Sayadaw, who's a Burmese master in the Vipassana world, has a progress of insight. And on the progress of insight, one of the key moments of progress of insight is what's known as the dark night of the soul, where you go through the oh my god 
you know, the the the, the three characteristics. The there's no the, the groundless ground, you know, all that yeah, stuff. And right. it's not so much that that's scary as much as it's real. You're realizing that what you've been operating, the system you've been operating on, is yeah. totally false or Absolutely. untrustworthy, okay. or you start to see the mind, you know, the, the, the mind has created a world that's really just a world that the mind created. It's not actually rooted yeah, in anything substantial. Right. That's right. You know, and the Buddhist teacher, the popular Buddhist teacher in monastic Pema Children yes. talks about that a lot. And she talks about that groundlessness and how that it's just part of the package. Right. You have to experience that because we're always clinging to things existing in a way that they don't. And then with practice, you let go of that. And yeah, for a minute, it's just this groundless dropping away kind of feeling that can either be exhilarating or terrifying or both at the same time. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You know, it's usually yeah. pretty intense when that happens. Well, everybody gets spit out the other side and usually looks back on it and go, yeah, that was a good thing. You know? Yeah. That's yeah. one of those things too, where people use the people use the word trend, you know, they people love to say Buddhist practices are transformational, right? Like, which is fine. Right. But I think what we often forget in that, and I always forget in that, and I know is that when you're in the actual transformation of the experience, it's mostly not pleasant. Mostly not pleasant. I mean, being burned up in the crucible and transformed from lead into gold is not pleasant for them. Like, so everything I thought about everything is just completely useless and gone. And- oh, gosh. <laughs> you know, and just sitting with that. But that was the wonderful thing about being in retreat for me was, you know, it happened often enough that I n- knew that on the other side of the discomfort was going to be more freedom, you know, knowing that, okay, if I could just stay with this and just bear it, how uncomfortable it is right now on the other side of it, because then there would always be the breakthrough to the new level, which was just so, you know, there was just so much freedom in that and so much in that. And so the, the, you know, having it repeat frequently because of being in the pressure cooker gave me more confidence in the process, I think. Yeah. yeah the pressure cooker turns out to be pretty good. Yeah. The pressure, co- it cooks you, you know, and I needed yeah. to be cooked. It's, it's, it's not funny, but it's interesting to me because when I think about like, you know, Buddhist liberation in Pali, they call it Vimuti. And of course, that's usually what we think about. One thing being mostly taught in Theravada or now early Buddhism, one thing I like about the Mahayana or the Bodhisattva vow is the tremendous emphasis on compassion. Yes. And usually yeah. when I hear the story that I just heard you say, and that my story, and the story we hear is that when I, when people go on retreats and they have these big moments and you say that the outcome of that was I became friends with myself or I, it, it's yeah. never some breakthrough into emptiness. It's never some wisdom understanding. It's usually what I always hear is like, I realize that I love myself or I realize that it, it's always yeah. seems to be the thing that does the heavy lifting is some kind of relationship to oneself that becomes more meaningful, more valuable. It's usually not your classic. I saw things as they are, or I, it's usually that like we come back to ourselves in a way that feels more stable. So I'm always happy when I hear that story and that's the outcome. Yeah. And you know, too, like when you mentioned the Bodhisattva path and the Bodhisattva vow, like I really felt like if that had not been my motivation going in, when those dark nights happened, I couldn't have been able to stand it. But just knowing I'm not just doing this for me, like mostly I'm doing this for others. This isn't just my own trip. And I remember this, this good friend of mine, and I was always suspicious, you know, we say sometimes Buddhas manifest in these ways to help you before I went into retreat. And I was just an administrator. I just ran Dharma centers. I wasn't any kind of teacher. And this one friend of mine who always kind of insisted on seeing me as, as one of his teachers, even though I didn't have that role or that title. And he goes, okay, don't mess this up. I'm counting on you to get me enlightened. Like you need to, you know, go in there. I mean, it's really kind of heavy. And he was like, don't mess this up. So when that would be really hard, I'd think of that and I'd go, like, I knew there were people that were looking at me as some kind of an example. And even though I didn't feel at all worthy of that, I go, I can't quit because then they'll never feel that they can do it. Like they're looking at me. And after the retreat, I got all these letters 
from people saying things. And I had no idea people were even thinking of me, but people would say things like, oh, I needed to do this really hard, scary thing. And I was really scared to do it. And then I thought of you in that year in the desert. And they were like, if she can do that, I can do this thing. You know, so I saw that even though I wasn't communicating with anyone. So it, it was the thing that kept me in there. And it, and I realized later it had an impact on other people too, you know, so that we really emphasize in my tradition, you know, just having that intention and that motivation for everything that your own spiritual growth is also for the benefit of others, that ripple effect. And I really found that to be important in that, in that situation, especially. Yeah. yeah I'm happy to hear that because, you know, coming from mostly the Theravada or really truth be told, the insight tradition in America, which is only four yeah. years deep, is there, there tends to be a kind of seek your own refuge. It tends to be a selfish kind of individualistic, mm. you know, nobody can do this for you, a kind of too much of like self, uh, I think that that can become kind of destructive in a way, um, you know, where it's like seek no external refuge and, you know, and it's kind of like Olympic kind of athlete meditator attitude. Right, take on that. Right. It sounds like what helped you get through those years was, you know, as they say, sort of the criteria for secular compassion understanding is that there's a recognition of a shared humanity. Yeah, that's right. That, And I think we overlook like in, in Buddhism in the West, you know, because I mean, a gross generalization, but especially American mainstream culture is so individualistic. And I always remind people there's three jewels of refuge. There's yeah. Buddha and Dharma. There's also Sangha. There's also spiritual community. I mean, why was that elevated as a refuge? And it's so easy for us to completely forget that because of our culture or just go, oh, yeah, Buddha, Dharma. Oh, yeah, Sangha. But we don't really give it the same weight. But, yeah. oh, man, none of us can do anything in isolation if we don't have the support of community. And I think that's when people get discouraged because they're seeing their practice as this individualist venture that nobody in their life is sharing. They don't really seek out the support of others and of community. And I think it's too hard. Otherwise, it's just too oh, hard. It's way too hard. I mean, I've always, I've done lots of retreats. I did the three-month retreat at IMS. That was the longest one I ever did. And I've a few times I tried to do like sort of the self-retreat. And I'm, I'm a self-retreat admitted failure. Like I need a schedule. I need a bell rung. Right. I do really good in the structure of a classic Burmese style yeah. retreat where I'm like, you know, like left to my own devices, you know, I'll eat cookies and watch Netflix. You know what I mean? Like I just, <laughs> you know, I have like that kind of near enemy of meta, you know, like, right. like I'm going to take it easy on myself and, you know, not. So I, <laughs> I, I think that that's important. And also it's hard, I think, too, because Dharma hasn't really been around long. There's not, you know, finding Sangha is very difficult. And I think people a lot of yeah. times have the wrong mentality about Sangha, like, some of my people that I can consider part of my sangha don't even know anything about Buddhism or don't care about it. Like, right. it doesn't have to be like people in America. They think they're going to join a, a sangha like they join anytime fitness. Like they just right. go down to their local Buddha center and then they just join up and now they're part of that sangha. And I think that kind of thinking is problematic too. Where I think when we have a sangha, there has to be some kind of self selection where we have to have a little bit of choice of who we decide to yeah. share with. And so that gets exactly. complicated, I think. And then also opportunities like a Buddhist center that I lived in recently. I said, you know, I think the Christians really have it right. They do like fellowship after the service, you drink coffee and eat cake in the fellowship hall. And so there was a Sunday morning. Alcoholics Anonymous has got that one down to a science. <laughs> yeah, but it's a way to connect because often in our Buddhist centers, people come, they come for a class or a meditation. They get in their car like and drive away. Silence and they get in their car and drive away. And they may be the only Buddhist they know or the only person in their life even interested in meditation. Their partner isn't, their friends aren't yet. And it's too isolating. So we started doing this thing we had a drop-in Sunday morning meditation, and we started doing this thing of just inviting people down to the dining room to hang out. Oh my gosh, people loved it. Yeah, and it probably was a little like, bit more than a meditation service. They would sit around and talk sometimes for hours because they had somebody else to talk to about what they were interested in, yeah, which right. they're not going to do in a class or meditation. There, there needed to be that informal 
time, yeah. which, you know, when we all get in our cars and drive away, I mean, of course, Buddhism started in these little villages and you lived with the people or in monastic environments, you were living together. But the way we live, I think we need to create more of those opportunities. It almost has to be more intentional and like explicit of like, we expect yeah. you to hang out for the next hour and just chit chat with the people here without right. any following any rules or guidance. Just like That's it. Just you know. open connection, yeah. you know, because we're human beings. I mean, we just seek out connection. Yeah. And, and it's just too hard when there's nobody else in our lives interested in what we're interested in. We're not going to be able to really, and then especially when we get the dark night of the soul or the, you know, hit a snag in the practice, just having other people around to talk to about yeah. what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to ask you to shift gears a little bit that you and I both share is as a, you know, a dedicated Buddhist monastic and obviously very dedicated to your practice and your lineage. You also have participated in a whole boatload of secular trainings. You're yes. trained in a lot of so what was the appetite? Could you say a little bit about that? Cause I, I also, when I saw you present the first time, I was like, I was like, why does this woman even have robes on? Like <laughs> she's like the least Buddhist person up there. It, 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 so it was interesting to me that you also had all this really great knowledge about sociology. And obviously you're just a junkie for learning was the obvious thing, but, but you know, there was also a lot of um, you've been trained in a lot of other perspectives. And so how has that been important? And what do you think was the initial inquiry into starting to look at some of these other things? Yeah, that's such a great question. You know, when I think when I came out of my long retreats, I was very gung ho, very traditional. Like when I started teaching, super, super traditional, teaching from the Buddhist text, you know, the way that I had learned. And I think over time realizing, you know, it's it's not sort of the hippie era anymore. People need a bridge. People need different ways of hearing the teachings. When I was studying, even, even in the 90s, and it was even more true in the 70s and 80s with a lot of my friends who were my age who went to India in the 70s, you know, it kind of came in this cultural package. And maybe we were attracted to the cultural package. I'm a baby boomer. We were like, you know, protesting the capitalism of our parents' generation. And so the brocade and the incense and the chanting in Tibetan was really appealing well, people, it's not so appealing anymore. And so I realized there were these incredible... Yeah, it turns people precious, off on some level. That's right. There was incredible precious teachings that were being presented in this cultural framework that didn't work for people. And then, you know, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, like my main teacher, he really understands that. And so I started in, you know listening to him. I mean, he meets with Western scientists and psychologists all the time in the mind and life teachings, you know, which I love. I mean, I always listen to those and, and read those because I'm interested in science and psychology and culture and all these things. So it's sort of his, in a way, his inspiration or the way I resonate with his thinking around this approach of like, yeah, we can present these practices within the context of traditional Tibetan Buddhism. Very few people will connect. However, if we take the practices and present them in a package that isn't, you know, have all this cultural and religious context to it, it'll become more accessible. So I really kind of, it's, it's His Holiness example. And then the two main classes that I, the two main secular trainings I teach, the Cultivating Emotional Balance and then the program developed at Stanford, the Compassion Cultivation Training, were both specifically at His Holiness request to fulfill that aim. Like, let's take these transformative practices and present them in a secular way. So I think my teaching, like over the last well, I did the Cultivating Emotional Balance teacher training in 2013, and that was a real shift for me in the way that I taught my style of teaching, teaching things more kind of workshop, much more experientially, more of a facilitator of process rather than I'm just going to tell you the lists of the things, you know, like in yeah, Buddhism. So that was kind of it. And, and just seeing the impact on people, like when I teach the eight-week compassion cultivation eight weeks. My gosh, people go through so much transformation. I actually taught one 
round of that. I've been teaching in prisons for about 15 years, and I was able to teach the compassion training to a group of people experiencing incarceration in this men's prison in California. And it was amazing to do that with these guys that are in a really hard place to practice compassion. Yeah, or it makes to the yurt in Arizona start looking kind of nice, huh? <laughs> yeah, you know, exactly. I mean, so I learned so much from them. One guy, I just have to share this one, one anecdote, because one guy who's in for gang-related homicide and doing hard time and has been in prison for a long time, and he said to me once, he, he, wrote, this, he wrote this thing that he calls, what do they call it in AA? They call it a testimonial. So he uses this, you know, they always use this language from like AA and NA. And he wrote about his experience in the compassion training. And he said, he goes, now he goes, I've always had a problem with anger. I always really, you know, pop off with anger. And he goes, now when I start to get triggered for anger and I want to react, he goes, I've got three strong men holding me back. And the three strong men are wisdom, compassion, and mindfulness. Nice. And I was like, whoa, that is amazing. You know, and you know, in his life, he has had literally people holding him back from getting into a fight. But just the way he came up with this metaphor of now the three strong men holding me back are wisdom, compassion, and my and I was like, dude, that is worth the whole eight week class just to get that. I know the nuggets to get out. Isn't of that beautiful? Yeah. So that kind of thing. So having us both have done CEB, I love CEB. That's where I met yeah. you. Um, yeah. well, well, now, of course, your connection to the Dalai Lama, he was kind of the inspiration behind that. Where did you take it? Who'd you take it with? How, how was that experience for you? What was your uh, draw towards doing the CEB training, which is a pretty big commitment. It's not like a, a weekend workshop, you know? That's right. You know, I was I was living in New Zealand and, and kind of going back and forth between Australia and New Zealand for a number of years. And we have a prison project of, of the Buddhist organization that I'm part of has an international prison project. And the director of the prison project was in Sydney. And so I'd often, when I had time off, go over to Sydney and work with her on prison stuff. We did some art shows of like artwork by incarcerated people and, you know, work with her. She had done the CEB teacher training the year before I did it and was just talking to me about it. And she'd done it with the inspiration to do it with incarcerated people. And so she was showing me, you know, kind of the, the workbook and the curriculum. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. This would be a great thing to take into prisons. So that inspired me to do the teacher training. I'd never actually done the CEB 42-hour training, but I just decided to jump right in and sure. do the teacher training. I was like, this would be so useful. And then I think about halfway through, I said, forget about just doing it in prisons. Everybody needs this stuff. You know? So that. that's when I started teaching it. In where, did you do, where, where, where did you take the training? Yeah, so that Eve was in, in Mexico. So it was Eve, Eve Ekman and Alan Wallace in Mexico. And that was when the model was still the five-week intensive teacher training. So that was in the summer of 2013 wow. at, at this place called Casa Tonali, this beautiful retreat center in Mexico. And then that's where I met Eve and also... Ryan, who, and then the three of us taught together for many. Yeah, I know. Now we're kind of core teachers for the teacher training now. But Ryan was one of my classmates. We had a group of about 55 people, mostly from Mexico and Brazil, and a sprinkling of North Americans. And I met some really good friends, some of the Brazilians. I still teach for them online, some of my Brazilian friends that I met during the teacher training and they invite me and I, I do things like two weeks ago, I did a training with like 300 Brazilians on zoom for That's one awesome. afternoon, you know, so they're kind of lifelong connections that I made yeah. during that teacher training. Yeah. Yeah. You and I share a similar thing where I think it's how there's a couple of things. There's a, there's the language that we use. So, so you can, pre you can present Buddhist ideas in a very Buddhist dogmatic language, or you can present them in everyday language and you can, you can present these ideas in ways that are different. And I think that that's yeah. a really important thing to do, but was there stuff in terms of content from CEB that you, that you really gravitated to that's like, Oh, not only am I using a different language, but there's a whole other context. There's a whole other universe yeah, being addressed absolutely. here that I didn't have a sense of. You know what I loved when I did the teacher training, because I had a lot of training in the Buddhist like Buddhist psychology, you know, the idea of a mental affliction, 
that there are these, you know, mental factors, and then some of them are afflictive and disturbing to the peace of mind. So I kind of had studied that framework, but the Buddhist or the Western psychology and the whole thing about the facial expressions and the universal emotions. I love the timeline. That was amazing. It's like the pendant origination reorganized. Exactly. And it's funny because we had to do final projects in the teacher training. And what I did was took the emotional episode timeline and applied where our Buddhist meditation practices would help attenuate the timeline. Like that was my final project. And I did this whole slideshow of like, this is where meditation on, on, you know, impermanence would help. This is where meditation on compassion would help in the emotional. So weaving the two together, because like I said, I was very grounded in the Buddhist psychology, but that whole, you know, the whole kind of Western psychological presentation of emotions was completely new. And then I had a lot of debates with Eve, like the the emotion of anger. We're taught in Buddhism. In fact, there's a famous quote, even a moment and wrong, right? You know, and then realizing the nuance of the English word anger, and some of it can apply to what is always destructive, like hatred and the wish to harm, but that anger has a function. And that blew my mind. That blew my mind too. That actually, that, that answered all my questions. Yeah, that's right. That that, that, like, that that caused that wiped away all my apprehension around. I was like, oh, okay, because because um, I experienced a lot of these, you know, and I and right. when I'm angry, I'm being a shitty Buddhist. Is kind of what I thought. Exactly, exactly, and like realizing, okay, there's an energy there that has a function, and then the choice is all about how do I express it. And if you don't harm, but if it's showing you, you know, the theme of anger, there's some obstacle. And I, I, you know, and you can use it like when I, I mean, my brand of anger is usually just grumpiness and irritation. But when I feel that I go, okay, something's not working in my life. Like that's a message to me when I just feel that irritability, like that's a clear message that something isn't working and then I can investigate like it's giving me, I mean, all of That's our good emotions, data. Giving us good, yeah, good information. And that, that was mind blowing to me, especially around anger, also sadness, oh, you know, cause right. we're kind of, kind of taught that there's emotions that are appropriate and ones that aren't. And even the function of sadness to elicit connection oh in God, the face so of loss and show us that something we lost is really important to us. Well, the thing that always got me in the classic presentation of, of, of mindfulness, this is the direct path to liberation that leads to the end of lamentation, despair. And so basically I always thought if I did mindfulness right, I'd never be sad again. Yeah, exactly. So the right. Sadness, You're never going to so be I sad assume, and angry. Yeah, sadness yeah. and suffering were my big sort of thing. And I was like, yeah. you know, if, if, Dharma practice is going to get me to the end of sadness and suffering. Sign me up. But then I had all this destructive sadness. That's right. And also, yeah. and also with anger being like, well, anger can go to hatred and rage. Anger also is part of compassion, which doesn't yeah. actually make sense to a polarized mind. So the whole <laughs> understanding that emotions, for lack of a better word, are ethically neutral. Right. Right. That That's changed a, the whole game for me. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. It sounds like we really had a sim- similar kind of breakthroughs coming into CEB from a more traditional Buddhist kind of framing. Well, and yeah. And to me, it really, it really changed the way I teach even traditional Buddhism. You know, I kind of name that when I'm talking about anger, even from the very traditional text. I say, let's be nuanced about what the English word anger, it can mean any number of, you know, different nuances of meaning. Yeah, I always like to say that CEB sort of ends the, ends the argument between science and spirituality. Oh, nice. I like that. Yeah. It's like, we're not going to argue anymore, actually, because that's destructive. And here's where, and so I, I think I, I, that's why, like, I was teaching... Um, for Bozeman Dharma Center recently, and uh, they asked me to do a thing on CEB, and I was just kind of like, okay, sure, fine, whatever, you know, and uh, and didn't realize how much I loved it. But then I, I taught this hour and a half thing the other night, and I was on fire the whole time because I haven't taught it in a while. <laughs> and I was almost like, I was like, check out this cool thing I have. It was like so much enthusiasm because uh, I think it's just such a great um, context, which kind of brings me to the next thing here is, you know, you and I have talked many times about this course you're doing now with us, the Secular Dharma Foundation, on, on what we know as the Brahma Viharas or the four immeasurables. Um, 
Uh, tell, tell us about that practice. When did you come into the contact with that practice? Why are you so keen on it? And uh, yeah, just say a little bit about that because obviously you came across that in your Tibetan training, but why has that become such an important practice to you? Yeah, and I think, so the, the four, we call it the four immeasurables in Tibetan Buddhism, that's the framing we use, and then Theravada, usually called the, the four Brahma Viharas. And I remember when I first started studying Tibetan Buddhism, you know, in India, in Dharamsala, where His Holiness the Dalai Lama lives, and this is like early 1991, there were, the, there were these beautiful prayers that we would do, like preliminary prayers before we do our meditation sessions. And one was on the basis of these four Brahma Viharas, loving kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, and equanimity. And even just reciting the words to me was so inspiring that these were these four qualities that you could generate through your meditation practice. Like I think before becoming a Buddhist, you know, I always kind of wanted to be nicer and I wanted to be better and more compassionate, but nobody ever explained how. It was like you're either born Mother Teresa or you're hopeless right. kind of thing. And I think that was the huge gift to me of, especially in Tibetan Buddhism, because there's so many different meditation techniques. And so like discovering these methods to actually you know, cultivate your compassion, cultivate your loving kindness, cultivate your equanimity. It was one of the first big breakthroughs that I think attracted me to Tibetan Buddhism in the first place. And then also in terms of what we were just talking about, kind of the secular side, His Holiness the Dalai Lama often says, there are these spiritual qualities and virtues that are universal it's only in terms of the explanation of the ultimate nature of reality that the religious traditions are really that different in terms of values and qualities and virtuous qualities. So for me, looking at these four, they seem so universal. I mean, there's nothing Buddhist about them. There yeah, is a way of looking at them, but like every religious tradition values loving kindness and compassion. It may not talk about equanimity and empathetic joy is explicitly, but also seeing these as, a, as one of those bridging things that works for everyone, whether you consider yourself a Buddhist or not. So when you and I were talking about me doing something, you know, for secular Dharma, it's right there in the name, I thought, oh, these would be beautiful to offer, because it's not some esoteric thing that you need to be a Buddhist for 20 years before you can engage. These are these universal human qualities that even secular humanists value things like loving kindness and compassion. So I think that was, and, and just seeing how transformative it was in my own life when I was beginning the path, realizing there's methods to increase these qualities that we admire. I mean, when you look at, when you look at the people you admire, I mean, it's always a short list and it's mostly people that have these qualities. Know, so we shouldn't think that there's such a difference between us and them. It's something that can be nurtured and developed and cultivated within ourselves as well. Yeah, my primary teacher, Stephen Smith, always used to call them these beautiful spiritual emotions. Nice. And I think yeah. they are functions of constructive emotions. And I, you, know, you said the word, you know, probably four or five times now, universal. How do you how do you integrate the uh, Brahma Viharas into constructive emotional responses? And how how do you? I know that with Paul Ekman has done a great job of outlining and defining these universal emotions. Of course, the, yeah. the Brahma Viharas are not really on that list, or the immeasurables aren't on that list. How do you negotiate between those two? So you know, we when we talk about the in the traditional presentation of the four immeasurables or the Brahma Viharas. Each one of them is said to have a near enemy and a far enemy is usually the language that's, that's used. Right. So the far enemy is the total opposite of that quality. So for example, for loving kindness, the opposite is hatred. Yeah. For compassion, the opposite is cruelty. So going to CEB language, you think about a destructive emotion, obviously hatred and cruelty being destructive and loving kindness and compassion being constructive for the most part. Of course, sure. it depends on how they're how they manifest, but that's how it relates to the emotion. Each one is the antidote actually to a destructive emotion. And that's why the four immeasurables are taught in the context of CEB as 
let's strengthen the antidotes for some of these destructive emotions, empathetic joy being the antidote to jealousy and envy instead of, you know, being jealous when someone experiences good fortune, we're actually happy for them when they experience some good fortune, equanimity being the opposite of strong partiality, attachment, aversion, and indifference, right? All of which can be destructive. So that's how it relates to the emotional realm too. All of them are seen as direct opposites or antidotes to an emotion that so often is can be destructive. Say something about the, because of the near enemy is, I, I know this teaching and I love it. Uh, and I'm always liking to get different perspectives on it. So say, what, what is the near enemy of metta for you? And how does that, does that manifest as being destructive also? Yeah, it definitely can. And the tricky thing about the near enemy and why it's called the near enemy, or sometimes it's called the indirect enemy, we can often think that is the proper result of our practice. Like we can get just off base enough and then we're just meditating actually and developing the near enemy instead of the actual quality. So we say for loving kindness, the near enemy is attachment, which has a very specific definition in Buddhism. We say that attachment, and it's quite different from secure attachment in childhood psychology. Sure, That's right. something different. That but really in, mucked everything up, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because we you know, use the word and people kind of freak out and they're like, no, no, secure attachment is good. But when we say, when we use that phrase or that term in Buddhism, we say it's perceiving something as pleasant, exaggerating the attractive, pleasant qualities of that object, and thinking by possessing and retaining it, you're going to have lasting happiness. So when, when our loving kindness becomes attachment, right, and sometimes our care for others can be really mixed with attachment. We want them to be happy, mostly because it's going to make us happy or somehow reflect on us or we're going to be the savior. I mean, it gets to be such a mess, right? So guarding against that wish for others happiness to be mixed with the attachment that says it's mostly really about how it impacts my happiness. That's the near enemy of attachment. So it's really important to just be, you know, in the first place, very aware of these near enemies, and then really guard against our practice kind of going in that direction, because it's easy. With the far enemy, like I said, the direct antidote, but they can twist into the near enemy pretty, you know. I experienced that a lot. I think the near enemy teaching is good, because I know that for me with Metta, um, you know, a lot of times it masquerades as like an indulgence and hedonic pleasure, which I know that CEB yeah. actually creates a, a, a framework for engaging in hedonic pleasure is actually appropriate and there's some happiness there. And so for me, I, I, I for me, the near enemy of meta is always snacking because, you know, <laughs> I've, I've, you know, I've been 40, 50 right. pounds overweight most of my adult life. And I, my desire and my wish and my intention, my aspiration is to eat healthy and to lose weight. And of course I have children, but then why am I eating a half a bowl of Cheez-Its? And it's like, well, because I deserve the Cheez-Its because I did a big long interview with Tenzin this morning. And so <laughs> it's that kind of like that for me, it's, that dest- it's not destructive as much as it's like, it's not bad or wrong, but it's, it's just not, not quite there. either, right? Yeah. It's not like fully, yeah, in that middle zone of not fully destructive, not fully constructive. There's a lot of gray area in there for all of them. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, one of the things that I teach about a lot when I teach about the compassion trainings is, you know, this thing we call um, empathetic distress, that often when we're tuning into other suffering, we can feel distress, which is one of the near enemies of compassion, either despair, or pity. So it's interesting to think about our, when is our compassion pity, which is like we're distancing ourselves from the experience of the other. We're like, oh, poor you. I can't imagine what that must feel like, you poor thing kind of thing. They have a phrase for that in the South, bless your heart. Yes. Which is actually very derogatory. It's like, you know, when someone says bless your heart, they don't actually mean, Mean they mean like, good luck for you. Good luck with that. Like, go ahead, go for Yeah, yeah. So, so it is interesting to investigate the 
the, you know, how we can get just off base. We think we're doing well, but just guarding against that, just, and that's where plain old mindfulness comes in. Like we're always checking our practice. Like, are we on track or not with these practices? So in the course I talk about the, uh, you know, I talk about both the near enemies and the far enemies and, you know, just, just kind of letting people know what to do when they arise and how to correct for them. And then there's this beautiful interrelationship where all of the four interrelate as the correction for the near enemies. Yeah, yeah, people. that's right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I've so seen, that- I think I actually have it in my, I have a little a book that I teach when I do teach Dharma retreats. It's like a sketchbook. It has all my important stuff in it. And I think one of the papers is one that you created. It has the four immeasurables, the near enemy, the far enemy, and the correction of how the Brahma Viharas are the antidote to the near enemies of the other. Yeah. It's so helpful. It's so cool. It's so, I mean, so to I me, want to make a t-shirt. Like magic gift. Yeah. I actually had, I had a student in Canada create the diagram because I was teaching that conceptually. And I said, Oh, I love a good diagram. We oh, just need a good diagram. And then I noticed during the lunch break, it was like a day long. She was doodling during the lunch break. And then she very proudly presented me and she'd come up with this like excellent diagram. I have it. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, one thing I want to ask you too, because I think I'm really curious to see what you think about it. Cause it's a, it's a tricky situation. It's around, you know, empathy, you know, they used to call it compassion fatigue syndrome. Now they call it empathy fatigue syndrome. People in our culture often correlate empathy and compassion as synonyms, which I think they're right. not. Yes. How are they different and how does that work? Because I think that people oftentimes assume that empathy is a good thing, but empathy can be very destructive where compassion really not so much. Right. And so we say that empathy, there's this wonderful, speaking of diagrams, there's this great diagram that I love presenting when I do the compassion training that comes from a researcher called Tanya Singer, who's at Max Planck Institute in Germany. And she does a lot of research on empathy and compassion. And empathy can lead to compassion. So we say that it's a necessary prerequisite for, for true compassion. Or it can lead to empathic distress, right? Usually when we talk of empathy, we talk about two domains of empathy. One is usually we we call it affective empathy, and that's this emotional resonance. Like as human beings, and this is sort of where the facial recognition that Paul Ekman talks about comes in. As human beings, we're finely attuned to the emotional experience of those around us. We don't have to know why. We don't have to understand the whole story. We see the person's facial expression, body language. We just immediately attune and resonate to their emotional experience. So that's one aspect. And then the other aspect we usually call cognitive empathy. And that's more of a perspective taking. You're putting yourself in the other person's shoes in a way and understanding things from their perspective And both of those things can lead to compassion, which we define as a wish to relieve the suffering, or they can lead to distress and overwhelm, right? We have a resonance with the person's experience. We understand what they're going through. And then we just kind of freak out. We become flooded with the same emotion the person is happening, which leads to distancing instead of connection. Yeah, we either get preoccupied with their distress or we want to be dismissive. And it becomes self focused, then it becomes about our distress. And then we're not connecting in any kind of constructive way to the experience of the other person. And then for a very small percentage of people, that same empathy can lead to some kind of manipulation, like the best manipulators are people who actually really understand what's going on for the person they're manipulating, like they really understand the emotion of the person they really understand. I mean, very small percentage of people usually that's not the pathway but it can be one very constructive you know destructive pathway is really finely attuning you understand how to take advantage of somebody right so we say that empathy is kind of ethically neutral and can lead to you know the very constructive compassion which then can lead to altruistic actions, if there's something appropriate to do, if you can show up to actually help the person. But yeah, that's, that's the difference between empathy and compassion. It, it is a prerequisite, but can go in a couple of different directions. And then 
you know, there's a big debate right now. Some people say there is no such thing as compassion fatigue. If you're really feeling compassion, there's no way that can be fatigued. Tanya Singer is in that camp and she uses empathic distress. I like that. I, I actually agree with that. Yeah. And then some people debate, you know, it's a debate, but the empathic distress is often what we feel when, for example, you'll see something on the news or, or, or a friend will be telling you something. Well, right now the world is ripe with moments of empathy fatigue. I mean, we're kind of all, you know, every day, it feels like we see some image or hear some story. I mean, the whole baseline of COVID, climate change, all the refugee crises, it's really hard. I think we're vibrating at this level of being kind of triggered. I mean, I notice that in myself. I feel like I'm already so close to a threshold that anything extra happens and it just sort of yeah, it's can like really I call it like empathy Jenga. Gone. You're like, can yeah. I I can't put in if I put one more log on this pile, the whole thing's coming down. I know, I know. I mean, just what we've been living through you know, the last year and a half, I mean, I think, especially with the baseline of COVID that just goes on and on, and then all of the other things, you know, it's not easy to keep that emotional balance. We need it now more than ever. It's easier and easier to get out of balance in a way that then we just, you know, do something destructive to our own and others' happiness. So, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm really happy that we're doing this course with you. And uh, so I just, I'm just i curious so a few words about, I know that, about what, what, what are the things you want people to know about the course? And also, that I know that we're, you're offering, we're offering two versions where there's one that's an interactive course where they can interact with you uh, and each other, any other course, any other ones standalone. Could you just say a little bit in the last few minutes about what, what to expect in this course and, and what the difference between the two might be? Yeah, so, so you know, what I, my aim is to provide an introduction to these four immeasurables, the four Brahma Viharas. The course includes both uh, videos, you know, short videos of me explaining the principles and the concepts. It includes a written, you know, kind of summary of what I've described in the video. It includes prompts, both for written reflections and contemplations. It includes audio guided meditations for each module. So all of that can be done by people who like to do something as a standalone, kind of go at their own pace. And then there's also an option that people can engage with the other students through a discussion forum. So in that version of the course, I've put prompts into the forum for people to share from their experience, sometimes from the meditation, sometimes, you know, I'll ask a a question about the near enemy and how it shows up in their life, for example, so that the students can start discussing and kind of really supporting each other and sharing from their own experience. And then for that interactive version, we're going to have monthly Zoom question and answers where we'll announce where to go and, you know, how to meet in a Zoom room. And it's basically just going to be open discussion and question and answer. So for the people who are doing the class, they'll have an opportunity to clarify any questions that come up or share from their experience or get further advice. So I'm really excited about that because that'll be my opportunity to actually interact in live time with the people. Yeah, that's great. Class. I'm going to be also looking at that discussion forum where the students are sharing and I might share things in there or, you know, provide more insights or, you know, whatever that might be helpful. Also at the very end of the course, I've put a page of suggested resources of where to go next, because of course, this is very profound teachings. There are many great, great teachings. So for people who kind of get a taste to be able to deepen their practice with some of the other resources. So it's intended both for people who might be pure beginners, just starting off with both meditation and investigating these four immeasurables and people who have a lot of experience that just want a different perspective and a way to deepen their practice. So it's really intended for kind of all ranges of of students in there. Awesome. Well, I feel like I'm cheating a little bit because I know all the answers to these questions because yeah. I worked with you developing this course. I just want to say I'm totally honored and it's such oh, a privilege to have you 
offer this course. I totally feel grateful that we have you as a teacher in the, in the university. And I can't think of a better person really well suited to, to offer this because I think it's a really important practice. People who listen to the podcast know I talk about this all the time. I mean, 50 books on mindfulness come out every month and there's probably thousands of online mindfulness courses. And um, I really wanted to offer a course on these heart practices as usually we call them the measurables, the Brahma Viharas. And uh, I'm really grateful for for you to put the time and the energy in. And uh, so for those of you who are interested, there is a link here in the notes for the podcast. If you want to click over and sign up for the course, you can do that. So, well, well great thank to see you, you Tenzin. So I feel like we could go on and on and on. Yeah, we totally could. It's always great to talk to you. And I just feel so appreciative for you giving me the opportunity. I've never actually done a pre-recorded course you know with the with both the standalone and the interactive option and so i'm really excited to see how it goes and really hoping that it provides a lot of benefits so thank you for giving me the platform to be able to benefit beings that's what it's all about absolutely well listen it's great to see you good to see you too